you know, as my time is starting to wind down much more sooner than expected, I realized that, you know, I've given my testimony once or twice, but I'm really not sure how much of the story about how Katie and I came to be together um, really went down. You know, and the reality is I'm already embarrassed my son today, so I might as well, I might as well just spread the wealth this morning. I'm going to spread the wealth. This, this story uh, will embarrass Katie, will embarrass me. You know, it's, it's all inclusive, trust me. So, so, but our time is short. So I don't want to get into all the gory details. I'll spare you the details that when we first started dating, the early in the spring semester, our senior year of high school, I was such a poor conversationalist, believe it or not. I was very shy, didn't talk much, especially around girls. Yeah, they made me nervous. They make me nervous, that's all I can say. <laughs> that Katie really thought I was bored with her. She didn't understand when I kept calling her week after week, say, hey, you wanna go do this this week? You wanna go to dinner? Da, da, da. She didn't understand. She had, she thought, you know, this must, I must be the only person he feels like that'll go out with him because he keeps calling and he seems to be bored with me and the reality was, I was lucky to get, I'll get out the hat because he didn't text to her when we went out. I just was. That's how I felt then. That's how I felt today. That's how I'll feel 50 years from now. You know? And, and so she was concerned about that. I'll, but I'll spare you the detail about how our relationship slowly began to unravel. Because was it Valentine's or your birthday? Which one was it? Your birthday. That I gave her a card, this, this beautiful card that I had custom made on those old dot matrix Hallmark machines. You remember those? <laughs> And it wasn't even what I wrote, it wasn't even what I printed on the card. It was a handwritten note where for the first time in our relationship, granted it had been a few weeks, just a few weeks, I expressed how I felt for Katie. I love you. I put that on a card on Valentine's Day. Not only that, I bought her this teddy bear and a rose, and I showed up at our church where she was doing something volunteer-wise on that day and gave it to her in front of everyone. Oh, so romantic. Oh, I, man, I, I was a romantic guy, I gotta tell you. But it caught her off guard, and those words caught her off guard. Because it turns out she wasn't quite in the same place. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you that yet. I'll spare you that yet. <laughs> and I'll spare you the reality that a few weeks after that, there was a youth spring break ski trip that I did not attend, which apparently gave Katie way too much time to think without me. <laughs> because it was clear when she came back, things were different. I couldn't identify what. I knew I hadn't been there that week, so I hadn't done anything wrong. <laughs> but something in the dynamic of our relationship had changed. And she knew something in the dynamic of our relationship had changed. And we reached the conclusion that walking to class one day that we needed to go somewhere and talk. But I'll spare you those details. <laughs> I'll, I'll spare you the conversation we had minutes after buying corsages for prom, where we took a walk to Bill Allen Memorial Park, which is the park now one street behind our home that we've lived in for 10 years, in which we sat down at this picnic table, and she explained to me that, actually she expressed to me for the first time exactly how she felt about me. She just wanted to be real with me. <laughs> I'll, I'll spare you that detail. I'll spare you that detail. And, and I'll spare you how my gut hurt at that moment. But corsages, but 
So I went somewhere and I could start preparing to do so. I didn't feel like I had much choice. So I'm justified in that thing. Or try to apply or anything like that. But they had the choice. But sitting there in their apartment at College Station that night, we were talking about the events of the recent of recent weeks and how she'd come to this football game. There were a couple other events that where Katie had shown up and we'd spent time together. And I, I was like, yeah, you know, I'd really like for us to get back together, but it's never going to happen. And they kind of gave me that verbal slap in the face. Would you wake up? Would you wake up? Katie came to watch a Division three time scholarship football game with you. Now, they're great games and the guys are talented, but they don't get a lot of publicity. You don't know the players unless you go to the school. So you don't go there and say, hey, I want to go see so-and-so play. Now, honestly, Baylor was not the Big 12 champion that they are now. But she came to a Division III football game with me. They explained to me, you are not one of her girlfriends. <laughs> she is not driving an hour to hang out with you just to hang out with you. She is not, she does not want to just be your friend anymore. Something has changed in this dynamic. And I thought, hmm, I think they have a point. I might just have to take this chance. So that following summer, I struck up the DTR again. I read that machine. I said, we're going to have this conversation. And that conversation wasn't easy. I was very nervous. Katie says I was gripping the dashboard of the car we were in very tightly. I, I don't think so, but whatever. And, and it turned out, it wasn't easy, but it turned out much better. It turned out a lot better. You know, she wasn't exactly clear of herself exactly where our friendship, relationship was going at that time. But there were those acts that started to crop up that indicated there was at least a burgeoning love for me. A romantic, sweet, lovable guy that I was. <laughs> Who would even go out with you to a dance if you just broke up. I know. Aww. I can't. Go ahead. Aww. Aww. <laughs> so we got to that point, and it reached this point where over the next few months our relationship blossomed in such a way that we were engaged in Waco. And I almost dropped her engagement ring off a suspension bridge in which I was proposed to. <laughs> I, I still ask myself, would I have gone over that bridge if the ring had fallen through the plane? I don't know, I, but I might have. But the signs were there. You see, love exists, not in mere words. Oftentimes, it's not even words at first. We see it in the actions of those around us. If someone loves us, it'll be clear by the way that they relate to us, by the way they treat us, by the words that they use in reference to us, to our face and behind our backs, in the little sacrifices they make of their time and their energy and their money to, to be with us, to help us, to guide us. Love comes through in action. So much so that the love is undeniable. This is what Jesus needed his disciples to hear at this meal, just before Passover, as he was getting ready to depart. 
He needed his disciples to have this lesson. Not about romantic love, mind you, but about that agape love, that self-giving, sacrificial love. And if we're really going to understand it today, as we read in the passage, we need to place it in its full context, because there in John, there's a three-chapter sequence from John 13 through John 15, in which this all plays out. It begins with Jesus doing the most incredible thing, coming to have supper with his disciples. The one who was known by his disciples to be the Messiah, even though they didn't know what all that meant yet, he would gird up his sack, his robe, he would kneel down and wash their feet, taking the place of a servant, a slave, and washing their feet both signifying the continued cleansing that we receive in our relationship with Jesus Christ and in community with one another, and the humble service which God has poured out to us that we didn't deserve through God's grace to demonstrate God's love for us, the love of Jesus Christ for each and every one of us, seeking to bring us in community together. So this is what Jesus starts with. And then he starts to explain to them again and again, you must love one another as I have loved you. Both a half chapter before the passage we read and a half chapter after the passage we read, that same command is there in John as a bookmark for what we read there. You must love one another as I have loved you. So here's Jesus in the place of a slave asking his disciples to do the same thing. But it speaks of much more than humble service. It speaks of much more than humble service. <coughs> it speaks of trust. Because taking the place of a slave is not how one would intuitively decide that that was their way to get ahead in the story. And neither is following Jesus and taking up our cross, that instrument of Roman execution that was used to quell Caesar's Falling in those ways made no sense. But for Jesus, it made all the sense. It's all there in 13 through 15. It reveals to us just what the nature of love is. It reveals to us just how hard it was for the disciples to get it. And that block of scripture also tells us that there is a relationship of mutuality waiting for us between us and God and between one another, which we will simply trust and lower ourselves to serve in humble service and trust a God in one another. We'll see that love, we'll see that mutuality, and it will spread like wildfire. It will spread like wildfire. Let's put this in more context. As we go back to the 
continues this thought in chapter 3 in his well-known conversation with Nicodemus. As Nicodemus is trying to figure out, can I fall again into my mother's womb? No, you can't. But you need to be born again. Why? Because sin is the older snake of this world in such a way that the Spirit does not enlighten us in the flesh the way it did in the beginning. We must be born of Spirit because sin has choked out that life-giving influence in our lives. So we must be born of Spirit to become a new creation and find new life. The same Spirit that blew across the waters in Genesis, we're told, blows wherever it chooses. Because this Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that Jesus shares with the Samaritan woman doesn't make any sense to the world. The light comes into the darkness, but the darkness rejects the light because it doesn't understand the light. It doesn't get it. It's completely contrary to everything that the darkness understood, understands reality to be. But there's the Spirit offering us newness, offering us the ability to be healed of our blindness set forth in the way of love, mutuality with God and with one another. Becoming one another's slaves and humble servants, it doesn't make any sense, but the Spirit blows where it chooses. We can't expect it to live up to our lives. Jesus also explains to Nicodemus that the darkness rejects the light because the darkness is evil. And this context of references to Genesis seems to harken back to that time in Genesis 6 when in the Noah story the thoughts of humanity had become only evil continually. God was grieved that he had even made humanity because they grasped they weren't supposed to eat from. They'd eaten that fruit. They'd chosen to be their own gods. And now, as Genesis, if you read through chapter 6, explains the evil that filled their hearts led to violence filling the earth. This violence was the wickedness that filled the earth. It began, yes, with that fruit, but the first act of violence
become selfless. It makes no sense. How can you call this the logos? How can you call this wisdom? You will get trampled if you live by the spirit of truth, which the scripture proclaims. How can you do that? And it's what we're called to do. It is what we're called to do. Because the self-giving life is the one that comes from us receiving the life of Christ. Seeing the incredible acts of Christ, of coming and dwelling among us, teaching and performing wonderful works, confronting those who are the Judeans, the leaders, and their ways of exclusion and power and seeking to do things by the ways of the world rather than seeking to do things God's way. <coughs> Jesus confronts that. Self-giving love confronts that. Because self-giving love opens ourselves up not only to one another in this room, not only to one another in this church, but throws our own arms open to everyone. Because yes, there's a sense in which Jesus is preparing them for the persecution they'll face, and that makes it even more important that they make sure that in their Christian community they love one another. But at the same time, we have to understand that if Jesus is calling us to love one another the way he has loved us, Jesus did not wait until we chose to be his friend before Jesus loved us. Jesus didn't make that choice. Jesus stepped out in self-giving and trust for the Father to love us with all the love God had to offer. It's a radical step. It's a revolutionary new way of thinking of humanity that's really not that new. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And for that, we can celebrate. For that, we can know there is another way possible. There is another way in which we can stand up, embrace the logos of this world, and follow Christ. But it's a difficult path to cross. We know what happened the night of that supper. We know Judas will depart. Filled with the evil one. So stop this foolishness that Jesus proclaims about self-giving love and trust in the Father. No, that's not the Messiah I know from. We know that Peter himself, the rock of the church, is predicted at that supper that he will deny Christ. Because when the yeast gets hot, he, like everyone else, is going to run away. Different combination of cards, all the same. 
And then there's those pesky atheists, especially that ugly atheist face. That sharp thing that looks kind of violent in itself, it tries to overcome the king of hearts. And the rules of cards will tell us the king of hearts can't play in every hand. But if Jesus is going to be the king of hearts of our lives, we have to embrace that self-giving love which Jesus reveals to us and which God sends the advocate to us to help us grow in our self-giving love and trust of the Father and trust of one another. And know that no matter what hand sin and this world will play, the King of Hearts is the trump card. In our lives, we have to trust that despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite all the sin in the world, the sin in our own lives as we chew out our kids over something as trivial as a piece of zucchini, Obviously, this is 
have to take the risk and trust God as the Pashtuns are doing. We have to take that risk and stand firm, knowing that God has shown us in every way possible that God loves us and that we can trust God to deliver us in the end. Place that full trust in God together. But we know it's a difficult teaching. We saw it in Judas and Peter. But this is why we can trust and we will celebrate again on June 8th that the Spirit is here. The Spirit did indeed come. The Spirit abides within every one of us. And the more we participate in the means of grace, Bible study, prayer, holy conferencing with one another as we seek to provide loving accountability to one another, worship the Lord's Supper, serving others, and as we seek to give our whole hearts to Christ, we can know that the Spirit will overcome that pesky sin that tries to claim it has all the power in this world and that it has all the power in your heart and my heart. Except that Jesus sent the advocate, the comforter, the helper, the Spirit to overcome that dominion any time we start to think, maybe I can't trust, maybe I'm not really a follower, the Spirit will give us the assurance that, wait a minute, you're a forgiven, you're a forgiven child of God, don't you dare think that way. For I'm your advocate, here within you, empowering you to know otherwise, empowering you to live otherwise. Don't live with despair that the way the world is is the world that I have to participate in, but live with the courage that the Spirit is overcoming the dominion of sin in our hearts and in this world. And that we can trust in God to be with us no matter what risk we take. That doesn't mean every event in our lives will be happy. That doesn't mean every risk we take will go without us experience some form of hurt or harm. But it does mean that we trust in God. And allow ourselves to be empowered by the Spirit through that undeserved grace that God continually offers. Our lives can be transformed. The lives of people around us Because when we love one another, or when Jesus has loved us, they will know we are God's disciples. And we have the Spirit to do it. Because we can't do it on our own. We will not do it on our own. We can try to do it on our own, but we won't. So what does that really mean for us today? What does that mean? We know, we know what it means for the Pashas as they, they leave by airplane this Thursday to go to Peshawar. They're placing their full trust in God and the Holy Spirit. What does it mean for us? What does this revolutionary, old yet new way that Christ has revealed to us of living our lives and being human mean today? How do we open up our hearts one another. Embrace one another with the love of Christ so that it reveals God's love to all the world. Well, you know, you may have seen the news this week about Mark Cuban. We know the, the Donald Sterling events with the LA Clippers and, and the recording of the hateful things that he said, you know, that were very racially charged. And then Mark Cuban came out and said, look, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. He was speaking about how what was said was absolutely wrong. 
ignore our own prejudices when we come down on the prejudices of someone else. We do tend to do that. So what he's saying is we can't get so cavalier in that that we forget to look within ourselves. And he, he used the explanation which was taken out of the context of the rest of his comments. That, you know, if I see a black kid wearing a hoodie walking down the street, I go to the other side. And if I see a white guy with tattoos all over his face and body, I'll cross back over. And I get why people react to that because, and I think it was unintentional on his part, and he apologized for this. It made the connection with Trayvon Martin and stirred up feelings for his family and those that had rallied around Trayvon Martin and his death and the complexity of what that situation was. And he apologized for that, but he defended his work. And there's some truth to what Mark Cuban says. But note the sense in which Mark Cuban is speaking. Now, I'm not going to tear down his argument at all. But I'm simply going to say that his comments of crossing the street back and forth are really, really only kind of reveal kind of the nature of how we think about life and how we view our own lives. We feel this need keep our lives in a tight little box to protect ourselves. If I fear someone, I walk away from them. If I'm uncomfortable with someone, I may relocate. But self-giving love and trust in God calls us to something much different. It suggests that we are going to embrace those we fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Correct? And that doesn't mean we throw caution to the wind and, you know, we walk into the midst of a gang fight or, you know, or something like that. I mean, we don't have to be stupid. But we do have to be trusting. Because we can think about the types of people who would make us uncomfortable if they were to walk in the sanctuary today. And we can think about the types of people that we encounter at our child's school or at work or at the mall that they either make us uncomfortable or we find them detestable because we've made a judgment about who they are and what value they hold in, in this life. But if we're going to embrace the self-giving love and trust in God that we're called to, we have to do it the way Jesus did. We can't live life in fear. We can't live life in fear of how someone else's life might pollute our own, or how someone else may bring harm to us, or how associating us with someone who is publicly of ill repute may, bring, may cast a poor light on us.
we can reveal the love of God as it's work, and people will have no doubt that they're our disciples. It comes down to how we use our words as well. Because Mark Cuban admitted he was a little, he was careless in how he crafted his arguments. At the same time, we are often very careless in the words we use in conversation. So often we say something thinking it just in jest, or make, although many times the truth is said in jest, right? Maybe it's our own racial comments that we're throwing out with friends, thinking, oh, I don't really mean anything by it. I'm really not going to do this. But words are like daggers. Think about what the book of Daniel says about the tongue. If we're using our words carelessly towards those who are different from us, whether by gender or ethnicity or social class, Whatever it may be, we are throwing daggers at others and wounding them to their souls. So we have to be careful about the words that we use. Because even if a racial comment is said in jest, you can't guarantee that someone who's heard those words in the utmost seriousness before in their lives and has been wounded to their core by that won't hear that and be hurt by that. We have to be certain about how we use our words. But yet we're, we're trained to use harsh words towards one another. It's, it's the political climate of our day. We throw daggers back and forth with those we disagree with, hoping that more people will grab a hold of our daggers and throw them back at the other side, and then we'll grab a hold of the other side not approaching one another with love. We're not approaching one another with love. It's the way of selfishness and domination as opposed to the way of the spirit of truth, which is selfless, self-giving, and trusting. Because I know what goes on. I mean, you've heard it, I've heard it said by some politicians, this is the way it has to be done. Or we won't achieve anything. You know, we have to do things the way of the world, or it's not going to happen. But God's casting a much different picture. We can't throw daggers of hate at one another. Otherwise, we're participating in the darkness, in the evil. And the wrong thing is spreading from us like wildfire. Because we caught that earlier. It can be a wildfire of love spreads out from us around this world, or it can be a wildfire of hate. It all depends on who the king of our hearts is. And if we're committed to being people of mutuality and love and relationship, or people of exclusion and disregard. But you see the great hope here? I mean, this is wonderful hope. Because we've seen the result of Christ's love for us in our lives. We feel it in our hearts. We've had, many, most of us have had that moment where our hearts were strangely warm and we knew ourselves to be a child of God. And it was undeniable because of everything that God has done for us. And that I don't deserve it, and I'll never be able to deserve it. 
without giving up and trying. Knowing that perfect love casts out fear. Because the king of our hearts holds us. The king of our hearts not only holds us, though, but proves it. Revealed in 